0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Asia Darbinian and I'm a postdoctoral fellow in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. I have a pleasure today of speaking with Stephen Badalian Rieg. Dr. Rigg received his PhD in modern Russian history in 2016 from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His dissertation Claiming the Caucasus, Imperial Russia's Encounter with Armenians, 1801 to 1894, was based on extensive fieldwork in the federal and city archives of St. Petersburg, Moscow, and to a smaller degree, Yerevan. After receiving an assistant professorship at Texas A&M University, Dr. Rick went back to the archives to expand and revise his dissertation into the monograph we are discussing today. His work has appeared in the journals, The Russian Review, national Papers, and Abinforio. Today, we are here to discuss Dr. Rick's brand new book, Russia's Entangled Embrace, the Tsarist Empire and the Armenians, 1801-1914 by Cornell University Press. Hello, Dr. Rick.
1: Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for taking time to talk with us about your new book. I know we are not supposed to judge the book by its cover, but how could I not bring this uh. up? After all, it is one of my favorite pieces by Martiros Sarian. Yeah. So Dr. Reed, would you please tell us about the choice of this particular painting and of course about the quite intriguing title of your book?
1: sure sure thank you very much uh this is a great way to start um you know i've always uh, been a big fan of sadian's work uh i love uh i'm colorblind so for me vivid bright uh really noticeable colors are very important and um uh, for a book, a cover in particular, I'm not particularly fond of the standard black and white photo on the cover of an academic book in particular, right. uh, and uh, I wanted to pick out a colorful work by Sarian because it uh, really makes sense to have that great artist's um, piece on there, he kind of uh, typifies uh, some of the aspects of the dynamic that my book describes. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was born into a fairly Russified Armenian family in um, Nahichivan-on-Don, near Rostov-Nadanu. He um, received much of his early education in Moscow at the um, arts and um, visual arts uh, school there. So uh, he's a product of an Armenian diaspora community in Russia who, after the revolution, immigrated to Armenia, to the Caucasus. I think he didn't even visit either Yerevan or Tiflis until he was a teenager. I think nineteen early 1900s was his very first visit, and then it was only in the 1920s that he moved with his wife to Yerevan and uh, I really love the painting that he created for an Armenian children's folk folk tales a book um, in the 30s during the height of the Stalinist terror I think he uh, painted that one in 1937 or 38 maybe 36 so right around the apex of the terror so uh, I'm really happy and very very um, pleased with how Cornell put that cover together. I think they did a great job. And of course, I'm very grateful to Sadian's family for allowing me to use it. Um, I met with uh, Ruzan Sadian um, at his museum last year a couple of times, and she was uh, terrific, very supportive, and uh, very gracious in granting me the right. Uh, the title, I, uh, I'm also a fan of concise book titles, uh, try and keep them, uh, succinct. So I wanted something that, uh, encompassed the main, uh, uh, themes of the book without giving too much away or, um, boring people to death. So, uh, uh, the first part I think is really the part that gives a hint to the thrust of my analysis, maybe even to the thrust of my argument. Emphasizing the entangled nature of Russians and Armenians, the fact that there is no simplistic, um, reductive way of looking at that imperial encounter. So I'm really hoping, encouraging, gently nudging and begging uh, us to stop thinking of any imperial relationship in a simple black and white, black or white uh, manner.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree. Um, You speak about the participation of Caucasus natives in Russian imperialism in this book. Mm -hmm. I think it is the fascinating aspect of this entangled embrace. And you emphasize that Armenians were both agents and recipients Mm -hmm. of imperialism. So tell us, how did Armenians emerge as Imperial Russia's primary partners in the early 19th century?
1: That's a really good question, too. Um, You know, let me start out with um, the Russian perception. The Tsarist official perception, and we can sit here and discuss all day, and we can um, discuss this at conferences and in articles and journals and books all day without a clear resolution. The Russian perception, either sincerely or artificially, viewed Armenians, specifically Eastern Armenians, as the oppressed uh, Christian minorities of the Persian Shah. To a certain degree, they had a very similar but not quite identical perception of Western Armenians under the Sultan's uh, rule as these marginalized, but um, not just uh, kind of um, marginalized, but also explicitly oppressed Christian minorities ruled, dominated, and uh, occasionally uh, um, killed and massacred by Muslim um, uh, populations, by Muslim rulers, by Muslim armies, by Muslim neighbors, by Muslim individuals. Right. And the Russian officials who were sent to the Caucasus in the first two or three decades of the century during the First Russo-Persian War, 1804-1813, during the Ottoman War in 28-29, um, and the Russo Second Russo-Persian War of 26-28, all of them wrote these reports to St. Petersburg saying that we must focus on uh, expanding into the South, annexing territory mainly from Persia through the direct and indirect assistance of quote-unquote Christian groups, local Christian groups. Most specifically, they identified Armenians, and to a different degree, they also identified Georgians as well. Right. So in the Russian imagination, Armenians were indispensable allies who had to provide. And my, I think uh, much of my work does show that they did provide tangible assistance in the Russian military, diplomatic, political, even uh, socioeconomic annexation of the South
0: Caucasus. Right. Uh, and I guess because you mentioned the role of Christianity in this question, my next point is actually about the importance of mm-hmm. Uh What role did Yerevan and Echmiadzin play in R- Russo-Armenian relations in this period? Uh, why was control over Echmiadzin so important for Russian authorities, even more than the capture of Yerevan?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But definitely more than uh, the capital of Yerevan. You know, uh, Yerevan, uh, especially in the first half of the century, Yerevan was really a very small, not a particularly significant, even from a strategic point, much less so from a political or economic standpoint, um, town. But Echmiadzin, in the perception of Russian uh, architects of empire, had this almost mythical ability to project uh, uh, cultural, social, uh, maybe even economic control over the dispersed Armenian diaspora. And uh, when we talk about this particular question, rather than the question of Armenian assistance, Armenian Christian identity, then there's definitely, we can uh, decisively say there was a, misperception, misunderstanding on the part of Russian authorities that H.M. had a real control, had a real uh, influence.
0: Absolutely, I mean while looking through this, uh, while reading through your book, I was like how realistic were these Russian authorities views of the power of Catholicos over all Armenians
1: and it starts out with them just emphasizing, trying to convince, uh, by them I mean uh, regional Tsarist authorities, trying to convince the imperial Tsarist authorities in St. Petersburg that we really have to focus on Echmiadzin, on the Catholicos, on his representatives, both in the South Caucasus and abroad, especially in the Ottoman Empire. But throughout the long 19th century, this attitude uh, evolves somewhat, but what never really changes is that the Russian state never articulated a specific, a precise principle, motivation, or even framework for. Um, projecting amplifying its own political influence vis-a-vis the channel of the Echmiyazin uh and his representatives or the patriarch in um Istanbul and Constantinople. So the Russians always discussed the goal, the objective of spreading quote unquote influence abroad um Via the Armenian church, but they never really articulated a clear cut uh, purpose or even goal. And at the end of the day, by the turn of the 20th century, they finally started in private to admit that the century long objective of influencing Armenians, perhaps influencing Ottoman developments through the Armenian church, was largely fruitless, it was futile, very little tangible geopolitical or cultural social or economic advantage had been accrued through that um, project
0: right well uh, shifting from the church to another important aspect that you discuss in your book you reflect on the complexity of relationships between the russian imperial authorities and armenian elites and educational institutions Mm -hmm. in a quite interesting manner um, could you talk a bit about this aspect of armenian relations? How, for instance, were Lazarev Institute and the Halib of Armenian Academy different from each other? Why were they treated differently?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting, I think, aspect of this story, because um, the question, the topic of Armenian education was one of those several pivotal components of the Russo-Armenian encounter in the long 19th century,
0: right.
1: So we have the religious aspect, we have the economic aspect, we have the socio-political, regional, and imperial aspect, um, and uh, we absolutely have the educational aspect, which I guess is part of the cultural question. Um, So in my book, I trace uh, the rise of the Lazarev Institute in 1815, its evolution, its growth, and the fairly consistent Tsarist official support and backing of that institution throughout, really, the 19th century. Then in mid century, we have the rise of a new, somewhat of a renegade Armenian private academy in Crimea, the Khalibov Academy of Yadosia. I think it opened in 1858. Uh, The Wazar Institute opened in 1815. And then uh, in the last two chapters of the book, I discuss the Russian um, attack on the parish schools, so another very different aspect of the educational question in the Russo-Armenian encounter. In terms of the difference between the Khalibov Academy and the Lazarev Institute, that the Lazarev Institute was uh, opened by a very, uh, um, arguably actually the most privileged and wealthy and renowned and politically connected Armenian family in Russia, the Lazarev family, um, whose uh, genesis goes back to the, in Russia goes back to the 17th century, but in the 18th century is when they really became, gained their economic, financial, and political sway. And the Lazarev Institute was meant to not just integrate Armenians who were Tsarist subjects and also recruit Armenians from abroad. It was also meant to provide them with real means, tangible means for social mobility within the tsarist, uh, particularly uh, bureaucratic official uh, structures, the hierarchy. So uh, um, the Lazaret Institute trained uh, ethnic Armenians who were um, encouraged and empowered to uh, continue their careers by joining the foreign ministry by joining even the Interior Ministry, the Finance Ministry. the And as I said, almost throughout its existence with some notable exceptions, it enjoyed quite a bit of backing from the state. Right. By contrast, the Khalibova Academy um, was uh, meant to specifically recruit foreign subject Armenians. I mean, non-Tsarist, non-Russian Armenians, especially from the Ottoman Empire, To provide them with a subsidized, practically free education in this uh, state, initially state-backed but Armenian-conceived education in Crimea, Uh, all of the curriculum there was supposed to be conducted in Armenian. In Armenian, uh, the general curriculum was one of those uh, um, nineteenth-century famous encyclopedic uh, curriculums where they study everything from Latin and Greek to Modern uh, mathematics and chemistry. But the purpose was not so much to integrate, maybe even Russify, and definitely not to promote Armenians through the professional service ranks, but rather to promote the idea of Russia as a benevolent patron and the really supporter of Armenian quote unquote enlightenment. And it was meant to really kind of sway the majority of the diaspora, particularly Western Armenians, toward Russia's orbit. The state was convinced that if the, these young Armenians came from abroad, received a free or subsidized education in the Khalibov Academy, then perhaps they would collectively have a more, um, more fruitful dialogue, engagement with the state. The Khalibov Academy actually turned uh, out to um, be on the wrong end of uh, business with not the Russian state, not the interior ministry, not the Ministry of Education, which was quite hostile towards it, but Ejmiyatzin. And that's a different story, but I discussed that in the book, and it's a really interesting part of that encounter.
0: Right. I mean, you discuss so many interesting aspects of these relations uh, in your book that it would be impossible to reflect (laughs) upon all of them in this one interview. So uh, I I have read the book and I highly recommend everyone to just check it out. That's really amazing.
1: Um,
0: Since you mentioned about the policies of the state towards the parish schools that you write in your uh, last chapters, um, uh my next question is actually about your last uh, chapter, which tells us the story of, and I quote, the greatest crisis of Russo-Armenian relations, end quote. So what triggered this crisis? How and with whose quote unquote help or endeavors was it possible to recover from it? And did they really recover?
1: Yeah. Uh, Excellent, very complicated, uh, multi-tiered questions here. Um, One thing I want to emphasize is I try to do throughout the book, and I understand that this might be a bit of a a tricky thing to follow uh, for non-specialists perhaps, is that there is really an undeniable multitude of factors which to some degree outshone one another, but are always important to consider when we discuss something as complicated as the quite dramatic turn of the what I label the what I call the Russo-Armenian symbiosis, which really started to fray in the late 70s, but by the early 80s 1880s, it was clear that the dynamic, the political dynamic, uh, had really shifted. Uh, what we have uh, happened in 1903 is the confiscation by the Russian state of Echmiadzin's properties. These are tremendously vast very um uh very important very usually successful and yes in some to some degree, some of them are very lucrative properties belonging to the Armenian church, whose um independence whose um standing had really not been attacked or even jeopardized to such degree ever in Russian history, which is why I call this an unprecedented breakdown of the symbiosis. Right. But we can't just say, oh, 1903, because of Stalin, because of uh, a few uh, rightist um, Russian, uh, either Russian nationalists or Ponslavists or arminophobes or, um, um, or vigilant uh, reactionaries, that because of uh, one or two individuals or one or two uh, themes and uh, paradigms, everything shifted. No, this was really a the culmination of a process that had uh, began at least a quarter of a century earlier, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, from the moment of the gestation of the, again, various strands of Armenian nationalism that... Uh, that arose both in eastern and western armenia and the russian state which was battling so many multi-tiered nationalist movements and real and perceived real and imagined internal um internal um, threats to its territorial integrity reacted very in a very clumsy and very heavy-handed manner in the early 20th century, uh, not just toward Armenians, but toward a lot of ethno-national minorities. Uh, We are so accustomed to speaking about Poles, uh, maybe Jews, uh, maybe Ukrainians in that context from the 19th century, but by the early 20th century, the Russian state led by some very um, rightist reactionary leaders, Gashosov Lebo comes to mind, uh, was really um, out to get uh, any real or imagined nationalists and uh, uh, not, you know, quote unquote, non loyal uh, subjects. So, um, yeah, the state absolutely cracked down on Echemyadze in 1903. But the reaction from uh, the Armenian ecclesiastical le- leaders, cultural leaders, social leaders was both strong and surprisingly unified. And by 1905, just two years after the annexation, the confiscation of church properties, Mikos II relented. He changed the leadership uh, in charge of Tsar's nationalities policies Um, and changed the interior minister. There was finally the return of the Viceroyalty to the Caucasus, Varansov-Dashkov had a completely different attitude toward the state's engagement cooperation with the indigenous Caucasians than most of his predecessors going back to the 1870s, 1860s. And thanks to those factors by 1905, I do argue that there was a restoration of at least the framework of the partnership that had existed until the eighteen eighties, eighteen seventies. So I think that probably outlines most of those
0: things. Right. Um, yes, Varanov Dashkov is his own story. He yeah. um, deserves uh, this period overall deserves uh, a lot more attention than sometimes we pay uh, mm. to to uh, since it determined also. Uh, Russian policies and Russo-Armenian relations afterwards. right? Um, also during uh, the war, especially at the beginning when Várensov-Dashkov still was the Viceroy and we see how it changes after he's not anymore responsible for the Caucasus Viceroyalty. Uh,
1: yeah, since he's not the last Viceroy, he's the penultimate Viceroy, it's really important to trace the the changes and the continuities from him to the last one and how Absolutely. that uh, I assume you uh, cover a little bit of, about uh, Varsov Dashkov's policies in your work
0: Well of course I have to because um I'm talking about refugees uh and the Russian policies towards the refugees in the Caucasus started from 1914 late okay. 1914 so there is a certain period overlap with Varsov Dashkov's yeah. um uh, still Uh, actions and um, decision-making processes in the Caucasus before uh, he came
1: He's a really fascinating character, and it's so helpful for us, the fact that his um, uh, periodic reports to the Tsar were published even during uh, the imperial era. So, um,
0: yes. There are Um, these
1: periodic reports. Exactly, exactly. So it's pretty easy to get to some of his real um, nitty-gritty details.
0: Well, because you mentioned the sources, I guess I'll jump to a question, which I'm always excited to ask um, the researchers, the authors of scholarly books, and that is... Can you talk a bit about the process, the research work that you did, because your book is based on extensive archival research and about your sources, about what was more challenging in your work and what seemed to be rewarding after the work was done or maybe even in the process?
1: Well, you know, you know this as well as I do. This is such an exciting but also difficult um process collecting the material in the sources and when we have to go to multiple cities multiple countries it uh can be equally i think uh rewarding and daunting and challenging but um overall um as you know and i try to make clear to everyone the overwhelming majority of the sources in the book are russian uh, from uh Petersburg and Moscow I mainly worked at um RGIA Russian State Archives Statistical uh, Archive the Publica up there the Russian National Library then I worked in um, GARF um State Archives of the Federati or GABIA Russian State Archives Statistical Archive Tsion Central Statistical Archive of Moscow Couple other places, of course, uh, the Leninka, Leninka, yeah, Moscow, and uh, I was really focused on uh, collecting um, state-produced documents, um, trying to get a very broad range of uh, views from the official from the very apex of the political system to as low on the hierarchy in the hierarchy as I could go. And my primary goal really was to get at the almost individual uh, motivations, ideas, and even emotions of these political actors, many of whom are actually quite familiar to us. We've encountered many of these names in other books. We've encountered many of their names in the syntheses that we've read in uh, works uh, that were perhaps written before the opening of the Russian archives in the 90s. Right. But what I wanted to do was to move, um, to zoom in a little more than that, to be able to give the reader a really detailed uh, perspective of the individual uh, investments, almost emotional investments of these historical actors. So um that's why the book is really heavy on archival sources. Um, but I do want to say that I think the topic of Armenian responses to Russian imperialism is so important, is so so needed in the historiography that I really hope uh, someone else will uh, soon produce an archival source study of that topic to give voice to the Armenians who contributed so much to um, not not only their own nation building, but also empire building in the region.
0: Right, that's absolutely important. Um, and since we speak about the importance of this relations and your work helps us understand uh, much better uh, these relationships between Armenians and uh, Russians. Um, I was also, I wanted to ask you, how do you think this work, your book, uh, contributes to our understanding of Armenian-Russian or Armenian relations in general? Also, considering the present-day realities and complexity, still complexity of ties between independent Armenian state and Russian state between Armenian nation and people and Russian people?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Well, obviously, needless to say, we all know this, that relations today are just as complicated, conditional, situational, and multi-tiered as they were ever in russo armenian history. Um, there's so many factors here to mention. Uh, you know, we recognize the fact that the Republic of Armenia, since the um, since independence, has been uh, economically and to a different degree, militarily and to a lesser degree, politically very reliant on the Russian Federation for support um we know that Russia supplies i think 84 85% of Armenia's natural gas the rest comes from Iran and I think Russia supplies something like 97 or 96% of Armenia's wheat but um as uh, you know both younger and older generations in Armenia will tell you today um the country overall uh, not just Pashinyan's uh, new government, but even before Pashinyan, before 2018, is trying to, I always want to say, diversify its political um, uh, connections and to uh, be able to loosen its grip a little bit from Russia because uh, Russian support hasn't been quite as uh, uh, advantageous directly advantageous as many had hoped uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s. Right. Uh, I think the book is really uh, going back to uh, helping us see some of the practical functionality of the gestation of the political partnership between Russians and Armenians that most Russian officials today, certainly the current leadership of the Russian Federation and even the leadership of Russian media, loves to portray. And yes, we have to admit, many Armenians in Armenia today love to emphasize. You just have to look at some of the banners that were displayed in Russian during the April 2018 demonstrations where... um, um, you know the na uh, Narodov was on full display once again, but uh there's so many um, um aspects of the book that I think really talk to the present era, but I really don't want to use what's happening the tragedies today um on the border to try yeah. to uh, connect too much to the book but uh the book does discuss the Um, the immigration of Armenians, it discusses the uh, reliance of Russians on Armenians, the tensions and occasional partnerships between Armenians and uh, Azerbaijanis in the region. Um, Exactly. But this is uh, certainly a very complicated uh, chapter still to this day, (laughs) without any clear uh, answers or resolutions.
0: Right. Well, thank you. That's a great answer anyway. Um,
1: I don't know if it's a great answer, but it's, um, it's probably the most uh, realistic answer right now that I could give.
0: Good for us. <laughs> um, so about real, uh, realistic approaches to this publication, who is the targeted audience uh, mm-hmm. for this publication? And what do you think they will take away from this book?
1: Yeah, uh, well, let me say that I wrote it with hopes, but perhaps there are more illusions than hopes that this book would appeal to a very broad, including perhaps non-scholarly audience. But I do recognize the inevitable fact that it's first and foremost going to appeal to three scholarly groups. First, I think specialists uh, of Russian imperialism, Russian mm-hmm. empire building, which is a field that continues to gather momentum and grow and expand and diversify.
0: Right.
1: Uh, secondly, and this is in no particular order, second, of course, specialists in modern Armenian history, maybe perhaps even specifically Armenian political history, mm-hmm. and third, scholars working on various angles of. Uh, the history of the Caucasus in general, maybe the political, socio-political questions of the South Caucasus. And I'm really hoping that uh, this is one of the many uh, recent works that helps us move away from the crisis paradigm of Russian-Caucasian history, moving beyond these reductive binaries of Russification versus nationalism or you know, Islam versus Christianity or progress versus stagnation. Uh, Those are such old uh, themes. We really need to retire those and move on to slightly more uh, complicated uh, discussions. Um, But I really wrote this book um, assuming that many of the readers are not going to be specialists who know even the general outlines of Tsarist foreign or domestic nationalities policies, mm-hmm. which is why I've tried to insert quite a bit of context in the book. And I very much hope that uh, doing that will help it become slightly more accessible to not only students, undergraduate, maybe graduate students, but also to a wider Uh, public, a reading public that is interested in the history of Armenians, of of the Armenian diaspora, who is interested in how the Russians managed to build the world's largest state. We sometimes forget that at its uh, zenith, the Russian empire covered think one-seventh of the planet's land surface. I mean, it's incredible. And as I tell my students all the time, please stop thinking that the Russians did it all either on their own or strictly through military conquest and power. They were never powerful enough to conquer one-seventh of the world. Nobody's ever possibly powerful enough to conquer one-seventh of the planet's land surface through...
0: And hold military. on to it. I mean, you can conquer territories, but how long are they going to be under your power?
1: Absolutely. So I'm really hoping that anyone who's interested in the repertoires of power, in methods of empire building, in methods of empire maintenance, the very different full array of empire building strategies uh, will take a look at this book.
0: Yes, and also you have inserted... uh, stories of certain individuals uh, which also could make the reading of the book very interesting uh, i didn't uh, specifically mention those names because i think it would be really a uh, quite a pleasant surprise for any reader to uh, stumble upon these names and learn something very curious and interesting I hope so. i hope so right uh, well my last question for today is dr rick you are doing your research you are back to archives you're still working on uh, another project i know so tell us what are you working on now and how does it look
1: yeah thank you uh well first of all none of us are back to the archives right now of unfortunately <laughs> because of what's going on i did uh, thanks to the tremendous support of my department and my university, I was able to go back to the archives last year. I spent mm-hmm. half a year in the BBC and St. Petersburg working on uh, what I hope will become my next project, my next book project. The tentative title is Westerners in the Tsar's East European Lives in Imperial Russia's Caucasus. And uh, the way I envision the study is that it's going to trace the lives of the Western European expatriates who lived, permanently lived, or lived for long periods of time in the Caucasus, mainly the South Caucasus throughout the long 19th century. Uh, There have been several studies, um, not really in English, uh, but in Russian and other European languages, of uh, the German colonists, probably the most famous example, but there are also one or two things on the Scottish and even the Swiss missionaries. But there isn't really a uh, holistic view of how these Western European uh, immigrants settled down, how they interacted with the indigenous Caucasians of various ethno-national groups, and in particular, how the Russian state relied and also scrutinized the presence of these Western Europeans in the Caucasus. So my hope is that this will be another um, way for us to understand the methods of Tsarist empire building in the Caucasus by looking at the uh, the partnerships, the confrontations, uh, the. Um, the amicable and the antagonistic dynamics between uh, Western European settled communities, indigenous communities, and the Europe the Russian um, imperial um, overlords.
0: Wow, sounds like another fascinating book. So we look forward to that one. We'll uh, well, it's today. a very
1: long uh, It's going to take a long time.
0: Well, probably especially because of the new problems uh, that. Uh, the global pandemic inflicted on all of us and we had to put um, our a lot of the research plans and travel yep. plans we're all but, with that though. but uh, we look forward to that work and for now we are really grateful to you uh for being with us virtually uh today thank you and very
1: much thank you for having me this has been a really pleasure
0: thank you for sharing your work with us
1: absolutely thank you